This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. Whenever you're ready. So, my name's Sam Weinstock, firefighter paramedic. I work with Josh down in the D.C. metro area. So, I've been uh, an EMS since 2008 and been a medic since I had my card in 2012. Right now, I'm in uh, education and instructing. Been doing that for a little bit. Uh, worked in pre- only pre-hospital environment, 911. Uh, worked, came from New Jersey. Uh, worked hospital based, and now I'm in a fire department based atmosphere for the last ten and a half years. So thanks for having me on. Uh, oh wait, I had a question. So where did you come from before? What state? Where are you from? Jersey. Oh nice, cool. That's uh, so like hospital based. Yeah, nice. Two medics on a chase car, two EMTs on an ambulance. We were. Oh, uh, that's cool. Hospital part of the hospital, just the MICU division. Okay, the so medical ICU division. Mobile right. intensive care yeah, units. That, yeah, that old uh, MICU name for ambulances. Yeah. See, I never understood that because I always, from in my world, MICU has always been medical ICU, so uh, intensive care unit. So mobile, what's it stand for? Mobile intensive care unit. Huh. We had uh, I think, pumps and a lot more drugs. Yeah, I think that comes okay. from like the Nancy Caroline, ah. American Sirens based. Which I just days. ordered that, by the way. Good. It should have got delivered yesterday. I'm in the middle of another book, side note, um, called... Something sirens and something. It's written by a lawyer. Oh, you sent that to me. Did I? Okay, you sent a picture of it. Yeah, I'm like halfway through it. It's really good, actually. Um, but yeah, sorry, Josh, go ahead. Uh, so uh, glad to have uh, you on here, Sam. Uh, today uh, we're going to talk about some stuff revolving around cardiac arrest. Maybe not your common things that we talk about, or some new things that are coming about. So uh, some. Uh, CPR-induced consciousness and awareness, uh, salad, and some tidbits about medications that we thought may be common use in cardiac arrest algorithms and have gone out of style or um, have come back into style and maybe their specific uses. So, Sam, do you want to take us away on CPR-induced consciousness, this newfangled thing that we're all talking about in EMS? Sure. So the abbreviation for it to start off, CPRIC, you'll see a lot in the literature. So what is it? And it is a true phenomenon. So what it is, it's signs of cerebral perfusion showing signs of a response during adequate CPR. So you can get signs of consciousness, right? The patient's waking up, a pain response, purposeful arm movement, verbal and nonverbal communications, or the following of instructions. But typically what happens is when you stop uh, compressions on their chest, they go back to being flaccid. So with this as well, you can get your agonal respirations because they're not receiving enough oxygen. The natural reflex that occurs when the brain's not receiving the oxygen it requires, they'll get that agonal respirations. Anything that ceases blood supply to the brain can cause this as well. 
This originates from the lower brainstem neurons and in arrest, those neurons become hypoxic. So you can still have agonal respirations and you're uh, not perfusing well. So like I said, this is uh, signs of perfusion once CPR is stopped. The issue is they go back to being flaccid and all those uh, compressions and that perfusion that you were uh, hitting upon get into the brain, right? They're dropping. So because it's disrupted, right, this can be negatively impacted. So we're hands off the chest, and we all know hands off the chest, right? We want the least amount, less than 10 seconds, but we have this whole other issue now that we have to uh, gain rapid control of. So these survivors that they actually, like, looked into, they're a risk for short and long-term psychological issues. So we want to increase the quality of successful resuscitation and reduce that psychological impact. So yes, you know, saying, hey, someone's alive, that's great. But now they also have this PTSD or this, uh, you know, they experience this abnormalness uh, of their own resuscitation. I mean, that's got to be wild and just odd within itself. Definitely. So what's kind of... Uh, unique and this is from last year from ncbi this occurs between 0.23 to 0.9 percent of resuscitation attempts so curious if it's still i know it's going to be low regardless but i wonder if now that we're properly documenting certain stuff like this that if it'll be just a little higher maybe over one percent but overall it's going to be very low i've never experienced it i know people at work that have uh, and it's very unique mm -hmm. So this is associated with professional rescuer CPR, right? Typically a witness arrest, a shockable rhythm. So increased rate of ROSC and survival to hospital discharge with CPR-induced awareness. The issue is with this, there's only a few studies of sedation uh, that exist for it. So if you look at protocols or just what's common in emergency medicine, it's, it just varies so widely with different meds and dosings. So, of course, the more studies are required. There is no widely acceptable treatment guideline. So there's, uh, you know, not, hey, you must use this at this dose or you're, you know, performing malpractice or not what's not current. Right now, there's nothing of that. So from uh, Canada, so from 2018, official journal of the College of Family Physicians from our folks up north. Longer time to obtain ROSC and were less likely to survival to discharge when administered benzodiazepines, opiates, or muscle relaxants, right? So our Ativan, Versed, uh, fentanyl, morphine. The use of ketamine and other disassociative agents was not described in this study. So that excludes those uh, unique, my favorite medication. So hypotension-inducing medication should be avoided, right? Your uh, benzos, opiates, there's always always that small or always that risk so it seems right now though mainstay widespread ketamine is the medication of choice if you have it in your formulary for this uh, cpr induced awareness so it's going to be a procedural sedation so you'll see i know our protocol it's one make per kig you know slow iv or io push uh, i've seen stuff anywhere from one to two that procedural sedation dose so this is complete dissociation effects, right? This is our high dose. This is our sedation. Um, just a little quick review, right? Our partial disassociation for ketamine, that's our middle recreational use. That's our no-go zone. And then you have your sub-disassociative effect, your analgesic or low dose. That's for your uh, pain management for ketamine. So we're obviously giving much higher than that.
So our concerns that other sedatives such as midazolam could impair vasomotor tone, leading to reduction in coronary perfusion pressures. And that was from European Resuscitation Council in January of 2017. So this is being looked at over, what, at least six years, you know, if not longer with specific meds, and they still don't have a definitive. They're just really leaning more towards, hey, use ketamine if you have it. So going back with uh, ketamine, we know it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, thus increasing vasomotor tone and heart rate. It has to do with the catecholamine release. So the question is, is this medication specific or dose-dependent? We know with ketamine, what they've realized too, this has neuroprotective properties, and that came from the same uh, study. So how does that work via the neuroprotective properties? So it helps to rescue damaged neurons by mitigating exotoxicity. Too much calcium impairs brain oxygen and glucose delivery, increasing sodium and neurons become damaged. Ketamine antagonizes the NMDA receptors and slows this process. This increases cerebral blood flow. Just uh, which, is, which is what we're shooting for in our ROSC. Yeah. You know, we're, we're looking for that uh, neurologically intact uh, ROSC and discharge from the hospital. And if you have forward. these, you know, CPR-induced awareness, like, you're heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. not saying always, but it's looking promising. Then, you know, the asystole, nothing changes. So analgesic use in patients during cardiopulmonary arrest. So most analgesics precipitate a drop in systemic vascular resistance or your SVR, with the exception of ketamine. So CPR is a time when systemic vascular resistance is needed the most. And I know with ketamine, right, you have a chance of... Uh, decreasing blood pressure, right? There's always that chance. Typically, if you push it too fast via IV or IO, or they're already hypotensive, and then you give it, and also has to do with intubation with doing that whole procedure as well. Uh, but typically, if you just push it nice and slow, right, you're uh, still treating them and resuscitating them. I'm not overly concerned with the hypotension right there. So SVR, your systemic vascular resistant, is the amount of force exerted on circulating blood by the vasculature of the body. So it's important for the hemodynamic profile. They did look at uh, animal studies of cardiac arrest. So NMDA receptor antagonism has neuroprotective and positively influenced survival rate. So the question is, did it actually increase or influence the survival rate just by giving the ketamine, or was it you know, due to the good ACLS, the good patient care combination, there's still, a, you know, more studies are always needed. So my big thing with this, and think about this, is you have to gain rapid control of this situation uh, as a paramedic or, you know, if you work in the ED with medications, right? So they're aware, they become agitated, your hands off the chest, you know, now you're questioning yourself, hey, am I doing the right thing? Right. If they do wind up making it right, they get psychological distress, PTSD. I don't want them to remember any of that. Mm-hmm. So hopefully ketamine's in your formulary. Uh, that would be the medication of choice right now. But you know, I know other protocols mentioned midazolam and fentanyl, but we have to gain control of these uh, patients, even though it's only a very, very small subset of the cardiac arrest population as a whole. So I, 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 you, that was a great synopsis. I want to uh, go back to the uh, basics a little bit. So you mentioned things like systemic vascular resistance, right? So for our listeners who may not have, you know, may not remember the 
the the baseline normal physiology of MAP, mean arterial pressure, is a function of cardiac output uh, and systemic vascular resistance. Uh, the nerds out there will say that central venous pressure is also a thing. Uh, sure. Uh, but for the sake of this conversation, the two major factors that I like to think about are cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. Um, the cardiac output is a function of uh, stroke volume, uh, so how much blood is actually pumped out of the heart, uh, multiplied by the heart rate, right? So when we are looking at our cardiac arrest patient, uh, we have a cardiac output that is null because uh, either the heart rate is not uh, strong enough or there is no heart rate or uh, uh, bec- you know, or there's just no uh, stroke volume or a combination of both. Um, I love that you brought up systemic vascular resistance because, like you said, it, the, the other half of that equation to having a good pressure is uh, SVR. And if we're providing medications that are um, uh, softening that number, reducing that number, our overall pressure that we're trying to increase, uh, and of course, increasing uh, cerebral perfusion pressure uh, is also being affected. So uh, with that review, I'm glad you brought up that it's an NMDA antagonist, right? So what does that mean? So NMDA is one of the uh, neuroreceptors that mediates glutamate. What is glutamate? Glutamate is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Think of it as the gas pedal of the brain. And the yang to that is uh, GABA, right? So we all know GABA as being like the uh, primary. um, But um, so when we're giving this thing, it's huge to understand this mechanism because of the central sedation that it uh, um, provides without having, um, like you said, that much of a negative uh, effect to the cardio um, systemic vascular resistance. Um, Question for you. Um, Well, first, uh, you said you're already going to send the paper. So anyone that's going to, that wants to review the resource, the sources themselves, please do so. Um, What was the... um, you said the one paper from Canada. What were, what was the study population that they were reviewing? I don't I don't remember. That's fine. That's fine. I was just curious. But um, no, it's good to review that baseline physiology. Um, and also, I love that you brought up the the PTSD uh, and the uh, you know the potential after effects for a survivor. Um, the other thing is you brought up. Um, well, I think you brought it up. Uh, how the ultimate outcome is. And there's something called the CPC score uh, that talks about how the quality of life after, and that was one of the things I wanted to bring up, which did I, yeah, here it is. Uh, so uh, a lot of papers will look at a CPC score. Uh, and I didn't really know about it until I was on a paper uh, that talks about, and they, a lot of times people, uh, CPC score stands for the cerebral performance category. And basically, CPC1 is good cerebral performance, conscious alert, able to work, might have mild neurologic or psychological deficit. It's us right now. Yeah. CPC5 <laughs> is brain death, apnea, uh, 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 EEG silence, etc. So a lot of times papers will combine CBC, CPC1 and 2. Uh, but CPC2 is moderate cerebral disability, conscious, sufficient cerebral function for independent activities of daily life, able to work in sheltered environment. But if you think about it, I'm not convinced that either of us would be able to serve as paramedics as a CPC2. No. Right? So that's a major impact. So when we're thinking about this, uh, it's important to uh, think about the 
not only the physical, like clinical uh, parameters that we can measure in the moment, but also what are we doing if we're able to get this patient out the door of the hospital into a rehab and eventually the years after. So I appreciate that you brought that up. My pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, no, so if you think about it, like, I mean, how would you feel if you were in that situation? Even with pain management, you can uh, equate it to, or like your family member, right? But here's the thing, if this is just like an ongoing, every like 30 second problem, where Mm -hmm. it's like, all right, we're getting into our flow, here's CPR, ventilations, blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, all right, patient's waking up. Okay, we stop. And now they go flaccid. And now, okay, we're back on the chest. You have to gain control of this uh, situation, regardless if you like these medications or not, you know, depending on what your department or, you know, jurisdiction uses, but you, whatever is in your protocol, you have to gain rapid control of this situation. You, you can't just let it ride and now ah, we'll just transport to the hospital. And then there's more of a delay. And yeah, there's, don't get me wrong. There's cases, right? Where it's 45 minutes, 60 minutes. And these patients do get discharged at CPC one or two, but mm-hmm. you know, if I could reduce that you know, resuscitation time and arrest, that's going to be crucial for, you know, majority of your patients, especially this small subset that we encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, on the, the whole thing with ketamine and it's kind of amnesic effects, you know, it's disassociated, but also has some amnesic effects. And this is anecdotal stuff. Um, One of, from what we were taught, uh, this was taught in the army, uh, one of the reasons we went to ketamine over fentanyl is because not only do you have your analgesic effects, you can use it for sedation, but it provides that slight amnesia so that the patient or casualty may not remember everything that happened. And it has shown to have positive PTSD effects uh, as positive as in lessening the reoccurrence or the issues that do come from PTSD following a traumatic injury on the battlefield. Uh, so it's definitely going to help with that. Uh, Sam, you said you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, Moose, have I, you seen no, it? No. Yeah, I, I know a couple people that have. Uh, it has worked. Uh, the ketamine has worked when they did do it. Um, guys on my shift had a very unique situation with a, uh LVAT arrest that they weren't quite sure what was going on when he was starting to buck the tube or if he was, what you know, if the addition of the LVAD working and everything was helping with the CPR induced awareness, but they gave ketamine and he was out. Uh, so it assisted in them being able to properly manage the cardiac arrest and deal with everything else that was going on with that. Cause it was a, a car- Charlie Fox trot, as some would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So well, I'll uh, add to, right. So your sedation hypnotic effect from ketamine crosses the blood b- brain barrier, causing that functional and, Soci- physiological, you'll edit that, brain dissociation. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> so if you notice, right, and this is how I've been teaching with Con Ed recently, um, if you look, every patient is different regardless of the dose you give. So you give your, you know, sub-disassociate effect of ketamine, your lower analgesic dosing, and you have someone, you give two doses and it doesn't touch let's say for your musculoskeletal injury that I've had before. And then you give it to the next person, you know, for pain management, hopefully get that uh, little hypnosis or that's, you know, sedation that, hey, I won't remember this incident. And you give one dose and they don't remember what happened and they're pain-free and it's repetitive questioning every two minutes. You're like, awesome. Meds are going to affect everybody differently. 
So you can't just say anecdotal, oh, I gave it to one person, it didn't do anything, and then the next person it works beautifully. Um, you know, just, just keep that in mind with any medication. And your dosing of ketamine is, you know, very important from your low to your no-go middle zone to your, you know, one mg per kg full disassociation. Yeah, even though we're talking primarily about the ketamine usage and CPR-induced awareness or consciousness, um, the way I like to look at it uh, is you either are going to give a dose that you don't think will work because it's so low, or you're going to give a dose that is so high that you think it's too much for what you're giving. Uh, For example, in severe agitation in the state of Maryland, it's 4 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 400. I am. I am. Yes. That is a lot of medication. And you're going to be like, oh, my God, I'm giving this much to a patient. Or on the reverse side, as I gave a couple weeks ago, I gave 1.5 mLs, which worked out to uh, 15 milligrams of ketamine and got a beautiful effect on pain sedation. Whereas that amount for that patient with fentanyl would have been a much higher number because of our uh, weight-based dosing. And so it's just one of those things like, hey, maybe a little tip that's either really small or really big, it's not in the middle. So, And I, uh, like I said, with Con Ed recently with teaching trauma, kind of equate it to, if you think about it, with permissive hypotension. You have someone with a, you know, you have a systolic of 70, you're conscious and alert talking to me, you know, maybe no radio pulse, or maybe you have one, and then you have me at 80 systolic and I'm unconscious. Mm-hmm. Same thing with blood sugar, right? We've all had the patient at 30 and they're conscious mm-hmm. and talking to you somewhat. And then we've had, you know, someone at 50 and they're out like a light. So meds and numbers affect every patient differently. Uh, so some key takeaways when it comes to working with uh, patients that do exhibit CPRIC or awareness is that, you know, we don't want to um, extend our time off the chest because, what you know, typically... The defining line between ROSC and CPRIC or awareness is that when you stop compressions, the patient goes back and rest. That's CPRIC and awareness. If they are ROSC, you know, they come up, they're talking, they're conversing, they're saying, my chest hurts, stop this, and you stop the compressions and they keep on talking, it's a good indication it's a ROSC and not a CPRIC, okay? So with that, if you stop compressions, they go flaccid again, reassess, get hands back on chest or Lucas started again and go right back into your ACLS algorithm and then start addressing, okay, even if they do start waking up again, you don't want to stop the compressions because that is the key to this whole thing. That's our key to our cardiac arrest care is compressions and early defibrillation. But in this case, keep on doing the compressions, address the, the induced awareness with ketamine and go from there. And we recognize the, <clears throat> the, the operational barriers to this, right? So when you, you're walking into a cardiac arrest you're, or you're working a code, not everyone, I don't, bring in my narcs, right? So we recognize that this is going to be a different thing, especially if you have a supervisor that may not be um, aware of or maybe as well versed in this, or if you are the supervisor and your clinician, your frontline clinician isn't uh, well versed, we, we, we recognize that. So there is going to be a change now, especially if you're the only paramedic on scene, uh, and you're worried about the code being mismanaged because maybe you have to walk outside or 
something like that. Uh, that it, we, if you don't have good hands on chest and if you don't have the ability to provide good CPR, that code is futile anyway. So we, uh, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but this should be considered a priority in your cardiac arrest management because the core things we do that actually work in CPR is uh, – hands on the chest, good compression depth, making sure we're providing a good cerebral perfusion pressure, uh, hopefully. Uh, so if you can't provide that because your patient's uh, becoming aware, that foundational requirement is not being met. So hold this as a priority if it happens to you. So something to think about, I've talked about it in past episodes, um, the way the agency that Sam and I work for handle narco- narcotics is that they are in our first in bag. Uh, that is a hallmark of how we deliver that portion of our care. Um, but I know I'm pretty sure sh- I'm betting that Sam, when he worked in New Jersey, he didn't have his narcs in his bag. They were probably locked. No, they up. were okay. Never mind. All I'm the wrong. paralytics were with it too. Yeah. So I'm getting called out. No, but so mine are locked up. <laughs> yeah, yours yeah. are locked up. I yeah. know there's other agencies within the, the state of Maryland that lock them up, and that you're not walking in the door with your narcs and. Just something to think about if your agency allows it, if your state allows it, if your med control allows it, consider uh, looking at avenues to make sure that you have what you need at the patient side mm-hmm. every call. Because this doesn't apply to these calls. What else is in your NARCs? Uh, benzodiazepines, procedures. Mm-hmm. You walk in, you're talking to your patient, and then they go into a tonic-clonic seizure, and now you don't have your benzos. You and say you are. And it's a, a persistent seizure. Yeah, persistent. Yeah. You know, you're in, they're in status, and uh, you are a lone medic on a chase car waiting mm-hmm. for an ambo to show up for transport. Now you're in that that moral dilemma: Do I leave the patient here and go get my benzos that are going to help alleviate this situation, or do I wait and try and manage this and possibly let them keep on seizing or going in and out of seizures back and forth, back and forth? So it's just one of those things to think about. Um, it's, it's not the point of this episode, obviously, but take it as a grain of salt. Think about it and see if you can improve your system so you can deliver that patient care yeah. timely and efficiently every time. Yeah, no, absolutely. <clears throat> so uh, um, how about talk. the? How, let's talk about bicarb. I think I've heard bicarb mentioned <clears throat> by a couple of medics lately that are like, well, mm-hmm. What, what have we done to change our delivery? You know, why did we go from just uh, across the board at the end of the arrest, we give an amp of bicarb because, well, they're acidotic now because we just pumped them with four, five, six, whatever our protocols were saying for epi at the time. That was a lot of people's justification. End of the code, give an amp. Let's see what happens. And I don't think... Hail Mary. Yeah, it's a, it's a that last ditch, Hail Mary. And... Off the top of my head, I can't think of many, if any, arrests that I've had that I've given bicarb, and within the next two minutes, I've had ROSC. Epi? Yeah, but that's a whole other topic. But yeah, so recently in Maryland, uh, last year, we switched to um, getting more uh, constrictive on how we give bicarb and arrests. So we switched to uh, if we have a uh, suspected history or a known history of renal issues, dialysis, and that we're thinking that there's a possibility that the arrest was renal in nature or at least contributed to by a renal failure. We're going to be looking at considering sodium bicarbonate, um, calcium channel, or uh, calcium chloride. Ugh. 
So, Sam. I'll even throw in for that, too, with uh, etiology, uh, tricyclic antidepressants or sodium channel blockers, right? Mm-hmm. That tox. You know, uh, we think of renal and then tox like two separate categories. But so I kind of think of this as the Ralph Wiggum of finger up the nose, like I'm helping and you're not doing anything with it. Now, yes, uh, more studies are needed, right? You'll see that kind of as I uh, go through this. But you have to have a specific reason to give specific medications. We are longer the days of, hey, just give it because it's anecdote or give it because one study said, you know, yay or nay. No. So, uh, interestingly enough, few human studies have examined the benefits of administration in cardiac arrest with sodium bicarb. And most are dated prior to, I was born, so most are dated prior to 1990, (laughs) right? So, a long time ago. And if you look, even the AHA no longer recommends uh, routine use in ACLS, and that was since 2010, 13 years ago. So the evidence for acidosis being harmful is primarily based on in vitro studies. The clinical data shows acidosis may not be as harmful as we think for these specific, you know, uh, cases. And yes, acidosis for us right now would not be good because we're typically healthy. But this sh- uh, failed to show benefit of use. So in recent years, sodium bicarb administration during arrest can have deleterious effects. So they can reduce cardiac output. The increased blood and tissue CO2 concentrations leads to worsening of acidosis in major organs. You get a shift of the oxygen disassociation curve to the left. Increase intracellular acidosis, which thus creates excess CO2, which must be quickly exhaled. So if you're not ventilating the patient adequately, right, they become more acidotic when you give this bicarb therapy, right? So that's a huge proponent of it is, uh, you know, blowing this off. You can get hypernatremia and hyperosmolarity. Now, again, most people, they're like, all right, cardiac arrest, I just got to get a pulse back. But there's that downstream, right? You can get ROSC all day long, but if they don't make it to the ICU or with a CPC score of one or two out of the hospital, I mean, you might give them a little more time for their family to say, you know, family mm-hmm. friends to say goodbye, which is important too. But, you know, if they're not making it to the ICU, it's like, again, the Ralph Wiggum, I'm helping but they didn't go anywhere outside of the ER. So with this too, you can get an increase in ROSC, but it's not sustained ROSC. And you'll, depending on which article or study you read, you know, you'll, you'll see that. So decreases rate of survival to hospital discharge, not statistically significant difference from survival to hospital discharge or good neurological outcome at one month. Again, this varies just a little bit depending on what article you read. Decrease in survival with favorable neurological outcome. Then you have no difference in survival rate. And there was uh, numerous observational studies of pediatric in-hospital cardiac arrests, about 4,800 patients, that showed significantly decreased rate of survival to hospital discharge with bicarb administration. So not only adults. Again, you have to have a specific reason to give a specific medication. You can't just, well... All Hail Mary, we're at 25 minutes, just do it to do it. That's bad medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and to highlight the, specific, the specificity of giving bicarbonate arrest right now. So I let it off with saying that uh, last year in Maryland Medical Protocols, we changed how we give bicarbonate arrest. And that it is specific to uh, a thought of hyperkalemia uh, or you know, renal issues prior to the arrest or leading up to the arrest. And also sodium channel 
tricyclic antidepressants, phenobarbital overdoses, and severe metabolic acidosis. These are our indications to give calcium chloride and bicarbonate rests. And even there, above that, if you look in the algorithm, uh, it's on, for the Maryland providers out there, page 43, it's your adult cardiac arrest. Um, when you go into your PEA, if you have a wide QRS PEA, that's when we need to start thinking about, hmm, was this hyperkalemia? Is this possibly a channel blocker toxicity of some sort? Or is there severe metabolic acidosis for some reason? Uh, and that's where we need to start thinking, okay, are we going to give calcium chloride? Are we going to give bicarb? Are we going to give both or just bicarb? Uh, and so just to highlight it, uh, hyperkalemia, you're going to give calcium chloride one gram IV IO and sodium bicarb one milliliter equivalent per kilogram IV IO, so one amp typically. And then for your channel blocker toxicities and severe metabolic uh, uh, severe metabolic acidosis it's bicarb only at the same dosage so no this is putting the the severe and old, almighty kibosh on or kibosh on bicarb on all arrests before we tor this is only in your pea with wide QRSs. um and you know, just to highlight, the wide QRS points towards the possibility of hyperkalemia. If you remember Hyper-K, if you start with the normal QRS, the T wave starts peaking up, peaking up. If you could see, my hands are peaking up together like a tent. And then as it gets worse and worse and worse, it bends down and comes down, and then it flatlines into death. So remember, as it widens out, that's showing that there's a possibility of it being um, Hyper-K or uh, oh potassium related mm -hmm. so just to really hit on that so everyone understands and the other point i'd like to say is if you feel like this is a one of the reversible causes you should be treating it earlier right so yes. this isn't something that we just shoot it off at the end yep. uh like any other preventable cause if you have a patient who you feel has a tension pneumothorax you would be decompressing them earlier on to fix that thing just like that, if you have a suspicion of a specific cause, uh, you would be treating that earlier. Now, calcium would be the priority in the hypercaic uh, uh, scenario because of the uh, benefit to cardiac contractility. Uh, but uh, like Josh said, for those specific indications, uh, it should be an early intervention, not a, uh, you know, a, I guess a, an attempt at getting a catch-all response. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about briefly um, because it. I think it's necessary to have a refresher on uh, just acidosis and why why are we even talking about this? So uh, our bodies are constantly in a state of flux, right? And our body has three major intrinsic uh, mechanisms to fixing acidosis itself. Um, uh, we already talked about the bicarbonate buffer system. There's also a phosphate buffer system and plasma protein. We don't have to talk about that. But the, the, the reason this matters is because uh, chemicals don't function in isolation in our body. They're, uh, I'm sure at some point in your paramedic education, I hope you heard about this thing called carbonic acid, right? So in our bodies, CO2 and water... Uh, uh, disassociate into bicarbonate ions and protons, hydrogen protons, but this intermediary carbonic acid matters for various reasons because the functions of life can't work if you're not in a specific pH range, right? We always teach 7.35 7 to 7.45. Um, when you're just empirically throwing 
bicarb into a, an already sick patient. Uh, we already, you already mentioned the effects on cooperativity on the oxygen uh, hemoglobin disassociation curve, but also we're just kind of throwing their, uh, their molecular environment into just nonsense for no reason, right? So uh, when the, uh, the, whether it's a tri- tricyclic or something like that, uh, their baseline uh, level has been shifted from normal, so then we're fixing it with the bicarb. But if there's nothing going on, you're just harming your patient. Uh, so I just wanted to stress that uh, because um, I get why I always think not having an understanding of normal stuff is important to then know why we're treating it. But yeah, so uh, great, great comments from both of you guys. But yeah, I want to make a comment. One, I'm glad you're handling that part. Uh, two, you were not reading off of a script. You were just talking. <laughs> just well, so everyone's aware. This is Moose. He is our uh, resident uh, physio- physiology uh, I just encyclopedia, I just basically. Yeah. Uh, it, if you guys remember, uh, there was an episode where he said, uh, what is it, a way to work through complex calls or something he thinks about complex physiological reactions within the body or something and we and, oh yeah and me and i think it was even dr jim brady who was on with us looked at him like you do what <laughs> yeah well i mean I, 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 it's just how my brain works i think it's yeah. just uh i, I don't know well I'll, don't that, make, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to go on that point out give you credit for that <laughs> thank you <Thanks>. um <laughs> and and one last thing uh moose said do this early remember and and not to uh, um, bring out some uh, PTSD for uh, paramedic students, H's and T's, H's and T's. I know I hit that a lot with our students this past uh, class where you'd get into your PEA and your ACSLE algorithms and you just would forget H's and T's. This is all part of that. You should be identifying these yeah. things early, thinking about them, like I'm saying, in your sub-10-minute time frame of your cardiac arrest. And, and I'm so happy you brought this up uh, because – so we changed uh, – that protocol got changed uh, to manage uh, PEA and asystole, right? It went from just having H's and T's to having a rational approach to PEA. And this came from a guy – and I actually brought this up, so I'm happy you, you brought it. So this guy, Lazo Lippmann, um, I forget where he's from. Um, <laughs> doesn't matter. Solid dude. He presented at University of Maryland's uh, Emergency Cardiology Symposium like in 2017 or 2018. But he, he's where I got the idea – uh, recommend that protocol because uh, he talks about sure we have H's and T's but then let's take it a step further let's prioritize stuff that we can fix in the field and let's do it early uh, so for example like QRS narrow right probably a pseudo PA due to a mechanical cause because and we're thinking about this because of things that we can fix um, and what are we going to fix to do that uh, whether it's a generally it could be a right ventricular obstruction but more so uh, the heart's working the way it's supposed to work because a normal QRS complex is narrow. So we got to fix something else. Um, the QRS wide, on the other hand, like you said, uh, for the purposes of us, first and foremost is metabolic until proven otherwise. And w- that's when we go do our detective work and treat early, uh, the metabolic causes that we can fix. Um, the thing that kind of throws this, uh, and this is for the 1% of listeners that are going to ding me on this. Yes, we can always think about the odd wide complex ideoventricular rhythm that's going to throw us off. Yes. And he even, even when he gave this lecture, he pointed that out. But 
in terms of problem solving, this is still a very useful tool. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yep. For any of this, be able to articulate why you're going to give something or why you're not. Yep. Yeah. But don't just shoot it as in, hey, I'm going to do it because we've always done it that way. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that covers bicarb pretty, pretty well, I think. I think we squashed the, the idea that we just give it at the end for the, the Hail Mary. One. Yeah, it'll always be one. Yeah. But, uh, you know, remember, do this early, do it uh, properly, yeah. you know, uh, appropriately. Give it to the appropriate patient um, and just go from there. I actually do have a question for you guys. Um, yeah. So in the protocol, mm-hmm. in the Maryland protocol, it says cardiac or, uh, so for indications, number one, acidosis, whatever, pre-documented. Number two, cardiac arrest only with a high clinical suspicion of acidosis, hyperkalemia, or a sodium channel blocker. Uh, overdose as a cause of the arrest. What is the definition of high clinical suspicion for you guys in the event that you don't have a lab value? I know you mentioned a little bit about the EKG, but what other things do you guys use? So it's going to be that um, detective work on scene you kind of alluded to just uh, a couple minutes ago. Um, Just, you know, Sam and I are lucky to work for a department that we're going to have a lot of people on scene Mm -hmm. when we have a cardiac arrest. And we're specifically, we're going to have an officer at least two probably uh, between the EMS duty officer and the uh, suppression officer that can go and look in the medicine cabinet, look at the bedside, look at the living room when we're in the bedroom, working on the patient, talk to the family um, and look for those context clues that do that detective workforce and be like, Hey, by the way, um, family says he uh, missed dialysis for a week. You know, okay. We've probably seen, the uh, fistula, you know, we, we, we know it's there. We know they're a dialysis patient, but we have no idea when they got dial, um, dialyzed last. And so there's that portion. So it's getting all that pieces and then looking at just kind of putting it together and talking to other medics on scene and be like, okay, well, this makes sense. And I'm seeing this on the monitor. And, well, they're on spironolactone. Okay, mm-hmm. so something's up with their renal system okay let's deep dive this a little bit more and let's see if we can't find all the information sam i mean when in doubt right <laughs> your basic <laughs> few rounds of epi compressions ventilation you know when in doubt just do your basic of your acls and you know that's what's going to be the mainstay of treatment but very specific if you don't have lab values like that nursing home patient or somehow urgent care where it's like, oh, we just did lab values. I mean, I would think of that or even like a DKA patient where you get very specific information from like by, you know, the family or significant other on scene, like, oh, they're diabetic. They've been, you know, handling this very poorly, X, Y, Z. You know, my index of suspicion would be higher, but we can get into the whole uh, cardiac arrest and blood glucose level debate shortly (laughs) uh, or discussion, I should say. But, yeah, I would say that's going to be few and far in between. Very, very few and far in between. Sure, sure. So I'm so happy you brought up spironolactone because so there are specific medications that folks are going to be on that I look for. Um, The easy one to get out of the way first is tacrolimus for transplant patients. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a kidney patient, but that it's one of the tools in the detective toolbox. Additionally, what are things that your renal failure patient is going to be uh, getting managed? So number one, fluid. So if they're on some sort of diuretic, it doesn't have to be for some 
mind that should throw up alarms. HTTZ. Yeah, abs- and it's not as common as it used to be when we, when, you know, like ten years ago in EMS, mm-hmm. it, I felt like I saw people on HTTZ left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. Now it's like extremely specific to people that retain a lot of fluid that are dialyzed frequently. Mm-hmm. It's much more specific. Yeah, and ACC uh, uh, in isolation because there are agents that are coupled with other like how so like losartan and HCTZ. Uh, uh, doesn't matter. We don't have to go into that. But uh, that's a that's a great call. The other ones that I'm looking at are vitamin D, vitamin C supplementation uh, for long term bone uh, de- uh, degeneration prevention or uh, just management, I should say. Um, I'm trying to think what else I'd be looking for. Of course, rate control, so some sort of beta blocker or ACE, uh, inhibitor for overall fluid management. This cluster of medications coupled with a physical exam that uh, fi- you can find a port, uh, you know, some sort of port in your cardiac arrest patient, that is huge. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, the other big thing is getting a good history from the family if, you, if you're able to. Um, I remember, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, one of my worst mistakes I've ever made was a missed hyper-K. Uh, I just, I, for some reason, I thought it was a paced rhythm. and uh, But the guy, the family told me they hadn't gone, he hadn't gone to, um, uh, whatchamacallit, dialysis. dialysis. He had a rate, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, uh, he was obviously bradycardic. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just, it, when they, when I showed up to the hospital and they gave him calcium and the guy like it fixed his heart rate, I felt like such a dumbass. Um, and looking back at it, I was like, man, I had all the clinical indicators. Why didn't my brain go there? And I I don't know. I still don't know, but I learned a lesson that day. Right. So, um, yeah, Gary, I don't, I don't know why I went on that diatribe, but yeah. It's, it's talking about, um, things to look for and like especially in the med list uh you hit on specifically spironolactone uh so um spironolactone htz lasix and spumetanine yeah another yeah so those are all end loop diuretics okay they if you guys remember back to your physiology hopefully it was covered in your paramedic class um the end loop diuretics it's kind of usually described is shown in an infographic of this you know s turning loop of what looks like a vessel and then they show that it works on different portions. And these meds, and I believe it goes, starts uh, basically um, the least effective is HTTZ, basically. It's, it's at the top. And it works down through bumidamide, uh, spironolactone, and then Lasix is the end-all, be-all because that is straight, like, get rid of fluid. Uh, spironolactone, uh, I feel like, is one that is kind of missed by some people. It's, it's not talked about too much. I, for whatever reason, it stuck out in my mind from paramedic class going on now seven years ago it just it just sits right at the front uh so i'm not as good with it as moose is so do you want to highlight what spironolactone is and how it works sure so let's just go back to acc's real quick and i just i googled it just to make sure yeah so uh, we're inhibiting sodium chloride transport uh into the tubule right so then we're allowing more salt to be and we maybe we should probably go we had a really good renal physiology 101 episode that you guys should go listen to that was where we had a couple med students come on so we're not going to dive into it right now but uh because more sodium is excreted uh water always follows salt that's a great pearl to remember in uh, physiology in general because of that uh they uh diary they more 
fluid comes out, right? So for spironolactone, it actually works on um, the, it's, a, it's an antagonist of aldosterone, and I, I, we can talk about that. Uh, but why does that matter? Uh, be, it's in a similar way, like Josh said, allows for uh, better fluid management. Um, the, of course, our kidneys are, uh, they, you know, not only do they uh, think of it as a excretory organ, right? For lack of a better term, that manages excretion and uh, more so. Man, my professor from Towson is going to kill me if he hears this. Think of uh, your kidneys as a, a, a crucial step, a crucial part of uh, maintaining homeostasis uh, in terms of fluid balance. And when they're not working, you you have to take things uh, to help you manage with that. So, uh, did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Good. Uh, to uh, another med here. Uh, let's talk about calcium since we're talking about bicarbonate. Yeah, sure. why not? We mentioned yeah. it. Give Absolutely. it. Let's do it. So, another one where more it, studies are needed. It is uh, potassium sparing. Sorry. That's what. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, makes sense because you're 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 like I like your word kiboshing kiboshing the sodium potassium uh, interface right there. So it's total activity downplay. So yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I, and I remember it as. Um, the lactone portion of it mm. for whatever lactate relates to hyper K in my mind. And I just potassium. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Calcium real quick though, because you <laughs> said that thiazides are another class of medicine. So you yes. hydrochlorothiazides. Thiazides is a class of drugs that, uh, it, uh, it basically blocks reabsorption of sodium, uh, which then allows for water to follow that sodium and more water goes out. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Calcium. No, you're good. <laughs> so a uh, trial from 2021, I'm sure many of you heard it, the COCA trial, C-O-C-A. So this was the calcium versus saline on ROSC in adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial of 391 patients in Denmark. So this was calcium or placebo with a max of two doses. They did exclude in this trial pregnancy, trauma arrest, prior enrollment, administration of epi outside of the trial, and clinical indications, so hypocalcemia, hyperkalemia. So remember, it excluded hyper-K patients. So this was just as a calcium just to give because, hey, it's a Hail Mary later on down. So if you look, 19% of ROSC after calcium administration versus 27% after placebo. So this favored the placebo group to not significantly improve ROSC so it wasn't supported. So the outcomes were there looking for sustained ROSC and survival at 30 days. And kind of the take home from this was trend towards causing harm compared to placebo, but there are specific populations that can still potentially benefit. So, you know, you're hyper-K, hypocalcemic, uh, very, very specific. But again, still unclear with more studies and evidence needed. So uh, also your Hyper-K, crush syndrome, calcium channel blocker overdoses. Um, again, this would be in supplement to, you know, CPR, epi, fluids, airway management. But you have to be able to articulate a specific reason of why, not just give it to give it. Yeah. Uh, th- this study, uh, looking at it right now, even just if you look at the, the key points right at the top, like Sam said, 19% had uh rosk post in just blatant calcium administration no indication 
just give it because that's how we used to do it. Send it. Yeah, just full send. Whereas 27% with just sailing. Okay. So uh, in research studies, it correctly you that there is an actual very significant difference between giving it and not giving it. Um, that once again, we are highlighting that, or not we, but medicine in general, and these studies are highlighting that you need to give these meds in specific reasons. And then, in fact, if you are just empirically giving stuff like sodium bicarb, calcium, a couple other medications, you actually may be driving down your possibilities of getting ROSC and having that CPC01, having neurointact outcomes, and that patient walking out of the hospital and you know, going on to whatever life they go on to. So make sure, once again, you're doing these for very specific reasons. There's a reason it's in the protocol like it is. It's not just because we want the state or your agency wants to hand tie you on things that you used to be able to do all the time. No, there's a reason. It's evidence-based reasons. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think it might be helpful for folks to uh, just a quick review of why calcium where calcium fits into the cardiac cycle, right? And why are we even caring about it? So uh, car- baseline, uh, how should I say this without snowing people? Um, in paramedic school, hopefully you learned that uh, baseline myocytes, cardiac cells, uh, potassium on the inside, sodium on the outside, calcium on the outside. But what's the point of calcium? Calcium, when you're, when the stimulus for a heartbeat occurs, uh, you guys probably all remember the term depolarization. But what happens is calcium comes into uh, the myocyte, which acts as a signal to get more calcium released. Because of chemical imbalances, that calcium uh, uh, doesn't, go into the cell because of so much potassium outside of the cell in this one example of hyperkalemia, um, providing increasing the concentration, uh, concentration of calcium outside of it. Think of it as an individual cell makes, uh, the environment conducive for calcium going into the cell like it's supposed to and doing its job, thus causing a heartbeat. Um, it's important to remember, like Josh said, if there's no, calcium issue or if there's no issue uh that needs that increased uh calcium outside of the cell you're just causing harm uh you're not doing anything um so and if anything you're making the patient hypercalcemic which in their already shocky state or whatever you're you're just making things work that was not my best explanation worse uh, but making things worse all right yeah what did i say <laughs> making things work i'm helping um, okay. <laughs> yeah. so uh yeah, yeah. So I don't know. We get, we don't have to edit that out, but that wasn't the best explanation. So it it works. Yeah. Um, calcium, kibosh done. We know why we don't use it all over the board anymore. We know why we don't full send on it. We know why we give it for specific reasons. But when it's needed, it's needed. There's a reason they remove the consult. Yes. In Maryland, there's yes. a reason for that. I mean, apart from we shouldn't be consulting for stuff we need to do anyway, but. Uh, for this specifically, if you have someone that's missed dialysis, that's, uh, you know, bradycardic, that has that textbook uh, hyper-K EKG, like, give it. You're going to see results, right? Now. There's not yeah. a lot of things we see results immediately. These are This is one of those things. I give it. And in your hyper-K, I know this outside of cardiac arrest, give it first. Uh, I know a lot of people are like, oh, sodium bicarb, sodium bicarb, sodium bicarb. No, calcium first. Calcium first. And Bi- then you're, and do your albuterol at the same time. 
Okay. Even the little hyper K ramp, but yeah, calcium, right? Stabilize that heart. And then bicarb and uh, albuterol, right? There's such, uh, it moves the potassium back intracellularly very, very slight. So calcium, so your patient doesn't yeah. rest. Yeah, calcium Ooh. stabilizes that cell wall, and then that albuterol pushes it back in. And bicarb is the last of the four. We can't give the second med, but we won't talk about that today. I get, we could do whole episode on that. <laughs> I got yeah. that down. So next one, glucose. Uh, that's a – I have Narcan and glucose, or dextrose, I should say. Yeah. And dextrose is uh, – there's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. Strap in. <laughs> So, blood glucose level, right, your BGL, is going to be more or less inaccurate in hypotensive or hyperperfused patients, right? So, typically, this will read as a lower level due to inaccurate capillary reading, right? Typically, when you grab a finger stick, right, it is capillary. Yeah, in the hospital, sure, you can do an ABG, right? Venous, uh, pre-hospital, we're not doing venous lab work. Most of us aren't, at least. So if someone is hypotensive, hyperperfused, you should really be looking at that venous uh, blood. But since we don't have that, kind of here's the everything else behind it. Oh, I just want to put in a thing. Mm-hmm. For anyone listening that takes the, oh, what do you call it, the IV thing, and like, have you, have you guys ever seen that? They put the pen in. Don't do that because I actually have seen one of those things break. They say, oh, never happens. No, I've, I've actually, like, they put a pen in. They put a little bit too much pressure because they don't know what they're doing, and they break the whole thing. You might get stuck. So <clears throat> so in a low-flow state, when the brain is hypoxic, it's not advisable to give it a large dose of the only thing it uses as food. This will increase the metabolism and oxygen demand. So the brain does not have the capacity to properly dispose of the metabolites. Points of info from foam frat. So nothing says dextrose is contraindicated via hypoglycemia and cardiac arrest. Right? So AHA added hypoglycemia in for H's and T's in 2005, and then they removed it in 2010. So it's still been a while. So 2020 PALS still has hypoglycemia as a reversible cause. My guess is because everything just takes so much longer for kids, and we don't fully understand it, but it's still in there for pals, not for adults. So this, right, you get that mixed messaging, but it was speculated uh, just regarding fear surrounding empiric administration of dextrose um, caused by AHA removing hypoglycemia from the risk. So the heart does not operate primarily on glucose. It utilizes fatty acid oxidation. So heart failure can alter this metabolism to fatty acid oxidation or glucose oxidation. The autonomic beta stimulation from hypoglycemia combined with epi being administered will eat up the glucose and glycogen stores throughout the body. So this leaves less glucose stores and free glucose available to vital organings, organs, worsening the, the issue. So the brain depends on glucose, and irreversible brain damage occurs the longer the hypoglycemia is left untreated. If hypoglycemia is not treated in time, hypoglycemic encephalopathy can occur. So hypoglycemia doesn't cause the cardiac arrest just alone by itself. So then you think, well, hey, it can't be a reversible cause, right? So it's a downstream effect, just like having a clot in the coronary arteries leading to hyperperfusion, ischemia, arrhythmia, and or death. Now, we discussed hypoglycemia, and you're like, okay, 
you know, kind of seeing we don't just give it to give it. But also, this is a very controversial word. Now we're going to go to the opposite end with hyperglycemia. So hyperglycemia after ROSC results in poor neurological outcomes. This increases the blood glucose level due to catecholamine release. And hyperglycemia is also an independent predictor of mortality in MI and CVA. Fun little tidbit there. So a study from Wang et al. in 2020 noted patients with hypoglycemia was a significant prognosticator of poor neurological outcomes in patients less than 150 uh, milligrams per deciliter that did not do well overall. So one study, right, correlation does not equal causation. But what it's saying is that these patients did not survive solely based on being hypoglycemic. So these periods of hyperglycemia immediately peaks after ROSC with a return to normal baseline about two to three hours later. So if you kind of think about it, right, you get ROSC, right, new patient, 12 lead vitals, and you're like, all right, blood sugar. I think most of the time I remember it's always high. It's never like low or, you know, on the low side of normal limits. Just something to think about. So animal models show VFib and ROSC suppresses insulin secretion due to systemic stress response. So decrease in chance of good neurological outcome and survival to hospital discharge. Lower rates of survival for patients receiving dextrose compared to patients not receiving dextrose. Worse neurological outcomes, but increases chance of ROSC. That was from one article and study. Dextrose and glucagon, unknown with concentration or dose. So what I'm saying with that is, from what numerous studies have shown, if you give dextrose, right, regardless of what flavor it is, what percentage, it worsens neurological outcome. But they didn't give a specific dose, and they didn't include glucagon. So this is just for your dextrose. So animal studies have shown that administering dextrose prior to, during, or after cardiac arrest leads to increased rate of mortality and worse neurological outcomes. So one study with pigs showed hyperglycemia prior to arrest was associated with this increased ischemic brain injury. Similarly, human studies have demonstrated that higher post-arrest blood glucose levels are associated with increased mortality and poor neurological outcome. So now you're thinking kind of what I was saying before to just clarify is, okay, hypoglycemia is bad in arrest, hyperglycemia is bad in arrest. Treating either or is also bad. So it's like, what do you do? And it's kind of at this, mm, this is going to be a small subset, right, of patients that are either, you know, truly hyperglycemic or truly hypoglycemic. And it's like, what do you do? And right now it's like, mm, I don't I don't know. And we'll get into that uh, shortly. So patients with hyperglycemia after arrest and other ischemic injuries like CVA, TBIs, have longer recovery times and worse neurological outcomes. Mechanisms behind elevated glucose levels and association with poor neurological outcomes are not well understood. So prior studies have suggested having a higher glucose level during periods of ischemia increases anaerobic metabolism, can cause cellular, intracellular acidosis, and promotes conversion of pyruvic into lactate, may decrease cerebral blood flow, exacerbating the cerebral ischemic injury. So if you get ROSC, right, obtain your blood sugar course treat treat accordingly but remember if they are shocky chances are it's going to be on the lower end or it's not accurate if you're getting capillary 
And typically these patients, once you get ROSC, they are hyperglycemic, but it you know resolves within two to three hours. Don't just empirically administer to administer, right? So this is going to be a very, very specific time of, you know, really what comes to mind is, hey, they were trying to commit suicide or somebody accidentally gave them too much insulin, right? And I have a very specific, you know, case of, hey, they have way too much insulin, right? This maybe aided into what's going on. Now I'm going to treat it. But to just treat it because I see a number, uh, it's inaccurate with the capillary reading off the bat. So to just treat it because of a number, I would say it's not the most beneficial to the patient. Because as you, uh, as I said, right, hypoglycemia, you give dextrose, worse neurological outcomes, being hyperglycemic, also not good. We need that fine balance. I think the general theme for today's episode is don't just do stuff to do stuff. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm happy you brought up this uh, insulin-mediated insulin hypoglycemic cardiac arrest patient because that's critical. You right? can dive into that. Yeah, because <laughs> – uh, uh, and this uh, – for those uh, that – this is a little bit of a zebra, cra- a zebra case scenario. Uh, but there is a very real uh, situation that can occur when you have, uh, like you alluded to, a very high dose of insulin for whatever reason that is administered will cause primarily a tachycardia that then progresses into uh, usually a complete heart block and ultimately cardiac arrest. In these situations, uh, it's and it's a very specific thing. So the reason I'm even saying this is because I would never say never for anything or always, you know, anything that's summative like that. But um, in those uh, situations, like you already mentioned, it's a specific clinical indication that you're going after as the detective instead of just this empiric administration to provide it because of the downstream effects. Um, uh, the I really I would love it if we can link this, Josh, uh, when we th- this is a great uh, review that Film Fret did. And I I'm a I'm partial to anyone that goes into the actual physiology, which they do a fantastic job of okay. the other resource I'd like to have um, attached, which I. Yeah, so there's a so NIH has a great review on the physiology of glucose that um, uh, I. I, this isn't the first time I've looked at this, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. But it's uh, fan- for anyone that wants to review, um, uh, and I'll email this to you, Josh. Okay. Um, yeah, great, great overview of that. Um, actually, a uh, coworker of ours ran a lady that tried to uh, commit suicide via um, insulin overdose. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things like a, you know, the zebra uh, type effect where – yeah, he's looking at it like, oh, this is just you know someone that is hypoglycemic, mm-hmm. and he would give meds, and they'd come around and start refusing care, mm-hmm. and then as they stopped the the detent, they'd go back out, and then they'd give it again and wake up. Nope, I don't want to go to the hospital. Back and forth, back and forth, and whenever she came around, she was A and O times four. She was able to refuse, and you know we're looking at it like he's looking at it. I wasn't there as well this is a diabetic and we we get refusals from diabetics all the time Mm -hmm. and what's going on here and then through some detective work figured out that she had multiple empty bottles of insulin in the vehicle and then ended up having to do a very um weird high risk possible ep type console this was probably four years ago now four or five years yeah um and it just was it's it's one of those ones that like really stuck out in his mind as 
you know, a very unique situation for a attempted suicide, but also just a unique situation as a provider trying to figure out what's going on and what is the best course of action for this patient and mm-hmm. overall the situation. Sure. So and for this, and I think most of us have gotten away in the pre-hospital environment, right? Because we don't have lab values, but uh, getting a blood sugar, I'm not worried during arrest. You know, if, if we get ROSC, sure, I get it. You know, could you, it's a new patient, right? They are alive. So if they are hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic, could you treat it? Sure. They're not, this is regarding patients that are dead. They are in cardiac arrest, but just if they are hyperperfused, right? Shocky, just don't be surprised if it's lower, but also at the same time, if you get ROSC, don't be surprised if it's higher because that is common. Mm-hmm. So if and, you're gonna and especially to be clear, in terms of prioritization, cardiac arrest, this is not a priority. Oh my God. No. Like going back no. to what we were talking Even about. Even just to beginning. get it, to get it. No. Yeah. You don't just... The only way I would ever even think about it is if I had too many people on scene and they're somehow not on the way, like maybe, but it's not even a thing for me. Like I couldn't tell you the last time. I'll get it as a vital sign for an alive patient. Because they're perfusing, right? And like you said before, the, 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 the diagnostic tool is that can't be utilized correctly because the, where we're getting it from isn't potentially getting perfused. So, um, I, I, I've noticed on scenes that less uh, blood glucoses are being obtained yeah. on cardiac arrests. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is working its way out just like uh, Narcan has worked its way out of at least our pr- protocols and how we run what scenes. A beautiful transition. And yeah. yeah, right into Narcan. Oh, so Narcan or naloxone. Was there anything else you wanted to do about glucose first? No, that was okay. it. Good, good, good. Yep. So Narcan, not recommended for a healthcare clinician to administer to a patient in cardiac arrest, right? So there's going to be a huge difference uh, when you're treating, whether it's the BOS or AOS level, hospital level, uh, compared to the layperson. Same thing with tourniquets. So Narcan administration, right, this is taught to the layperson because they cannot medically perform an assessment or they can have difficulty obtaining a pulse or you know, evaluating breathing, right? We are trained to do this. We have experience doing it. You know, the, the accountant on the street does not, right? So we're not holding them at fault. Standard resuscitation measures need to be the priority for cardiac arrest. And we kind of alluded to this before, right? Hands on the chest, you know, defib if uh, needed, right? Airway management, IV, still have epi in our formulary, right? Those things, not, not just throwing meds at them to throw meds at them. So AHA Journal states if the patient is receiving standard resuscitation care, it is unlikely to be beneficial by just giving Narcan, right? And that's from BOS or AOS. The underlying cause is hypoxia and hypercarbia associated with CNS depression, right? So the hypoxia is for your H's and T's, right? Your H's, right? You can fix the hypoxia by just BLS airway management. Which, I mean, sure, if they need ALS airway management, sure, but, right, BLS airway management, bada-bing, right? So empiric use does not improve oxygenation or ventilation drive in a pulseless patient. You have to breathe for them. BVM, oxygen, high flow, OPAs, MPAs, right? Once they are dead, right, let's fix that hypoxic issue. Now, this does take time to work when a patient is perfusing, 
right? So a lot of times people just give Narcan and they're like, all right, let's just stare at them. And it's, you know, working elsewhere when, so working elsewhere, uh, when Narcan was like really coming out in the, you know, pre-hospital environment, everyone was getting it, watching BLS and PD, right? They would just give two, four, six, eight milligrams. We'd come in late to the party, uh, where I used to work two tiered system. And, you know, you have someone who's breathing at two, four times a minute, they're blue. And it's like, why is nobody oxygenating, ventilating these patients? Yeah. Right. Like. You can, uh, the oxygenation ventilation is first. If they're alive, right, then of course, if the uh, Narcan's indicated, sure, but once they're in cardiac arrest, compressions and BLS airway management. And I want to differentiate, I know this might be a little bit of a basic thing for most of our listeners, but ventilation, we're talking about the mechanical movement of air with the stimulation of opiate receptors they're reducing that respite that that mechanical movement and that's why good bvm ventilation uh two provider technique good seal having a good bls airway doing the basics is crucial for these patients Uh, and then additionally the oxygenation portion that you said having once you have good mechanical uh, exchange of air you have you can provide good um, oxygenated air at the alveolar space at the gas exchange interface to get not only oxygen uh, to their cells but the uh, the carbon dioxide out of them uh, and that's where it frustrates me when I show up to a scene and like you said you know 16 milligrams of Narcan has been given but no one's bagging the patient and they're uh, very obviously cyanotic, unwell, peri-arrest. Um, and yeah, so, yeah, great. So uh, whenever someone comes to me and asks, like, hey, Josh, why are we not giving Narcan and arresting? Or like, why is this not part of our algorithm anymore? Um, I bring them back to something Sam said, that this is the main etiology of this, this arrest is not the, so, you know, not the overdose per se, or the ingestion of a, uh, a poison it is the hypoxia that created a depletion of oxygen within the body and there's another and th- this kind of ties into we need to make sure we're assessing how we think our cardiac arrest happened you know we all typically presume it's cardiac you know it's even in our reports that it says cardiac in parentheses presumed but it can happen in multiple different ways so we need to figure out how this happens so if we're highly suspecting that it's an overdose another one if it's a drowning the primary thing that we need to focus on is our ventilations. Like, yes, compressions are great, but this patient died because they were out of oxygen. They are, uh, a lot of times with our overdoses, young, uh, relatively healthy individuals that do not have a laundry list of medical conditions like our elderly patients who die from typically cardiac issues. Um, So, it's not so much that there's an issue with the heart or the pump. It's actually the issue that there is no oxygen. So let's replace that. And in a patient that is not perfusing, that is not oxygenating, Narcan has no additional help added. It's just something that you're giving. And then some people say, well, if it's not bad and it's not good, then it's okay to give. Well, no, we're giving things for specific reasons. We're doing actions for specific reasons. So 
in your cardiac arrest uh, or your overdose cardiac arrest, really focus on those ventilations, getting, like Moose said, that two-person grip, you know, uh, make or using some kind of contraption. I know uh, Sam and I's department, we promote a, uh, a specific technique that is starting to go away because it was more promoted because of COVID. But um, get those ventilations in, get that oxygenation up. And, you know, depending on how long after they have arrested and exp- uh, expunged all this oxygen, we have a higher chance of getting the oxygen back in, getting it circulating, getting things perfused, getting the metabolic uh, processes uh, working again, and then we can go from there and, you know, hopefully have a ROSC and a positive outcome. And these patients, right, if, if let's say they're alive and now you give Narcan, maybe you did bag them, maybe you didn't, right, now they're agitated, right, they're aggressive. Everyone likes to go, oh, it's because you took their high away and, like, Yes, to an extent, there's a uh, shock to the body, but it's because they were hypoxic. Yep. That's that's the main reason why they are agitated, uh, you know, confused at first, is because of that hypoxia that was just um, reversed. So to give you, you know, uh, some maybe maybe an analogy, go to bed tonight, tell your spouse that at some random point in the night. They're going to slap you in the face and wake you up out of a dead sleep and see how you feel. That's somewhat relatable because you're, they're coming out of a state of um, unconsciousness to a room full of people they don't know that are typically standing over them or very close to them. And so you're going to be agitated. You're going to be scared. It's going to be that fight or flight response. Which hypoxia also aids to. Yeah. And... On top of it, they've not been perfusing their brain properly. So now they're even more cloudy. Uh, so uh, take that all in consideration. That's where that, you know, that um, titrating to respiratory response is. You don't slam, especially you don't slam your IV uh, Narcan uh, because you don't want this sudden reversal of effects of the opo- opioid. And now you have someone that is confused and probably a little scared because of what's going on around. They went from maybe their buddy was uh, using with them to now there's six, eight, ten people, cops, firefighters, paramedics. Uh, so work on that. Do that nice titration of response to respiratory drive. And if you've got an intact respiratory drive that they're breathing at 12 to 20 times a minute, as they should as an adult, no more Narcan. Just assist and transport. So with that being said, there's actually little to no evidence that it has any impact on achieving ROSC and improved neurological outcomes with just Narcan alone. And uh, something I learned from this, several studies have shown opiates have neuroprotective properties in cardiac arrest. Now the potential negative effects to administering Narcan, some of these will be familiar, but you have that vomiting, Right, if they can't clear their own airway, or you're not suctioning. Now we have a uh, airway breathing right issue. You can get this withdrawal shivering that increases oxygen demand. V-fib or V-tac secondary to withdrawal in an already irritated hypoxic heart. So rarely reported as a serious complication, but you know, like we were saying before, I just want uh, small titratable doses, not four milligrams IV at, at a time. 
according to NIH, there seems like they have a good amount of data for this, Narcan may induce VFib in ROSC patients. So if you think about it, right, ho hopefully, if you already got to the point of ROSC, you've been oxygenating and ventilating these patients, right? At this point, just continue doing what you're doing. I'm not worried about giving a medication, right? Hopefully, by this point, you have a supraglottic or, you know, endotracheal tube in, and you have full, you are fully managing that airway. I'm not worried about reversing them breathing. I'm going to breathe for them. So with that, the heart is also extremely irritated from hypoxia and injury during the arrest state, including opiate withdrawals. So think about it, it's like gasoline on fire, right? So, you know, the heart is extremely irritated and angry. Now I'm reversing that. It's not helping. Let's just continue oxygenating and ventilating those patients and monitoring their airway and breathing. Awesome. I do want to, I know this is completely random, but uh, we should probably take this opportunity uh, well, is there another topic you wanted to talk about? No, I just have a few more things with Narcan. Okay, good. It. Yeah, yeah. If, let's finish up with Narcan, then I want to bring something up. Yeah. So we all heard, uh, you know, Narcan can cause pulmonary edema. Mm -hmm. It's actually really, really, really rare. Yep. And we've covered that here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I didn't get to that episode yet. No, no. It, it, it was one we did with Vipberg, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. A long time ago. Just long wanted to throw it out yeah, there. Yeah, no, you should. It's a great review. Uh, yeah. Until you really start, you know, deep diving it, it's a very, 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 very small mm -hmm. subset of that population. Yeah. Um, with this, too, if you think about it, right, hey, I have uh, airway management, right? They are intubated. Right now, there's potential difficulty in sedating these patients or managing their pain, mm -hmm. uh, whether you have ROSC or they're just intubated. Uh, if you gave Narcan, right, you're not going to be able to really, most people, you know, have fentanyl or morphine. So that only leaves you uh, a benzo or ketamine. If you don't have ketamine, now you're only down to a benzo. And that's only for, you know, sedation, hypnosis, not uh, analgesia. Just things to consider depending on what you carry. The only thing I would like to say about the uh, naloxone-induced pulmonary edema is a couple things. Uh, and this, every, I feel like every episode we end up looking at, like, why, how can we, like, describe research better? So and many limitations occur, are present with this naloxone-induced pulmonary edema, uh, a lot of the papers that I've seen. So um, one of the things is framing bias, right? We often do not have patients that don't have other things going on right, that may contribute to a pulmonary edema. Additionally, at least from when we recorded previously, a lot of the understanding came from the perioperative setting, which is very different from the pre-hospital setting, right? So um, a lot of the ambiguity comes from that. I think, of course, it's been established. It's a very low rate of occurrence. Um, the But I think additional work does have to be done to have the exact uh, prevalence of this occurring from pre-hospital administration of uh, uh, naloxone, especially because so we have a global underreporting of naloxone administration because of the availability, which I think it's great that we have increased availability of naloxone. Uh, but I think once we bring that in larger picture into focus, we'll have a better idea of what's ex you know what the occurrence rate is and the other cru crucial items. And just to reiterate with this, right, we're specifically talking about cardiac arrest. I know we kind of brought up the whole yeah. when they're patient alive, right? Mm -hmm. The first thing is oxygenation, ventilation. Yep. Then if it's indicated, sure, give the Narcan. Mm -hmm. But your first thing should not be going through the bag trying to get the medication when the person's blue and breathing at two times a minute. Exactly. PLS first. Yes. Yeah. That's what I got. So I wanted to bring up xylazine. 
because that seems to be one of the biggest highest topics right now and uh, uh just w- number one wanted to get your thoughts on it as we finish up here and then i'll provide a brief overview and why it matters so i don't think i've seen it mm-hmm. uh one uh, i know that we in our department put out a um an email about it along with some additional information the fda and the cd and the cdc's is the fda and one other the D- da's DEA. uh paper on it um i know i heard it in another uh podcast recently um that is one that i it's gonna be a tough one to deal with when it, mm. it does present itself um because uh i think unfortunately some of us are going to fall into the well things are not getting better so i'm going to keep on giving this medication mm-hmm. um even though we know it's not going to work and we're seeing you know cases that do have it you know upwards of you know 16 20 milligrams of mm-hmm. narcan being administered to these patients and nothing's happening so i think it's uh xylazine could also be a a reminder like hey just because we have a med doesn't mean it always works. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's always indicated and that we need to look at the broader picture of what's going on with the patient. And this patient just needs to be oxygenated, ventilated, mm-hmm. and well perfused. Yeah. Um, I know I can't think of the podcast. So I was driving up to my last day of drill when I was listening to it. But they're talking about these patients are down in a overdose state for like six to eight hours at a time and they're requiring some pretty intensive management because they're getting tubed they're getting ventilated because you can't sit there and bvn them for six to eight hours yeah so uh they are uh presenting a unique scenario to our field right now yeah so sam yeah sam yeah i have not seen it being at the academy i don't don't (laughs) see that kind of stuff sure um no it's a newer uh issue i haven't deep do it yet sure yeah so uh, just a br- let's do a brief review recap of naloxone and opiate stuff first right so there's three primary opiate receptors when we're giving naloxone it's something that's competing for a receptor site and there's a finite amount of receptors right so when alluding to what josh was talking about eventually when you have all of your opiate receptors saturated, there's a maximum point where giving more Narcan is not going to give any, do anything, right? Because you're already sort of fixing that problem. Uh, and sure, you're going to have more circulating naloxone, right? But there, there's, a, there's a ceiling to benefit, right? Where if you're still seeing sedation, that's where things like xylazine could be a pot- potential uh, cofactor in the patient's sedation and mental status. So um, let's do a quick review of uh, adrenergic receptors, right? So we, we, at Paramedic School, we know beta-1, beta-2, beta-3, right? And we learn about alpha-1 receptors that uh, I imagine the average paramedic thinks that it's, uh, and believes rightfully so that it's, it has to do with vasoconstriction. Whereas beta-1, beta-2, beta-3 are are, um, providing the same physiological function, alpha-1, alpha-2 are, um, think of them as opposites of each other. So when we're talking about alpha-2 receptors, we uh, think of it as, and I should say, xylazine is a strong agonist of alpha-2 receptors. Uh, Think uh, sedation. Uh, think re- decreased release of n- uh, norepinephrine centrally, uh, centrally like so central nervous system, and causing sedation. What is going on with uh, uh, once because we're uh, 
because it's an alpha two agonist, we're causing a more centrally mediated uh, sedation, which is not going to be affected at all uh, by naloxone because it's a completely di- different receptor type. Uh, what are we going to be seeing with these folks? Sustained uh, sedation with no effect uh, from naloxone. But how do we treat it? We do the same thing, right? We good airway management, good BLS management. Uh, treat other things that might be associated and get them to the hospital because this person is going to be uh, under advanced airway management and uh, critical care management in a hospital setting for some time. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that up because I, I've been seeing it everywhere, but I feel like folks don't know, um, you know, exactly what, you know, what, what uh, class of drug xylazine is. It, it, so it is primarily a veterinarian drug. There are alpha-2 agonists that are prescribed regularly. Clonidine is one of them. You'll see folks using clonidine with opiates. That's been going on for years. Uh, Presidex is a huge one that they use in an ICU setting for um, uh, sedation, especially in neuro-ICUs. So uh, very interesting, very you know current topic that I wanted to bring up. Um, that's all I had with that. I mean, we can, we can do a deep dive on it. Yeah, yeah. You got anything, dude? No, that's hey, it. Hey, thank you for coming on. Seriously, this is great. My pleasure. You're welcome anytime. Oh, thank you. Yeah, seriously. Uh, so, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, thank you, Sam, for coming on. Uh, wherever you're listening, uh, please hit a subscribe, like, follow us on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're trying to get that built up more and more. I hope you guys are enjoying it. But wherever you are, thanks for enjoying. The, uh, thanks for listening. Have a good night, good morning, good day, and be safe. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.